But uh, today uh, we are beginning a new sermon series in the book of Ruth, Old Testament book of Ruth. That's going to you know, begin today and it'll take us through uh, Christmas Eve. And so if you'll please turn in your Bibles to Ruth chapter 1. It's a very small Old Testament book. You'll find it's just after the book of Judges, which is a little bit bigger book, and it's right before um, uh, first, uh, first and Second Samuel. And so whenever you turn to Ruth, as you turn there, let me try to orient you to this little but significant Old Testament book that some have uh, referred to Ruth as uh, an Old Testament Cinderella story in which Ruth, the, the Cinderella character, you know, finds her prince in the end. And it is a, a love story which includes a, a level of, of romance. It's also a story of an outsider who becomes an insider with, 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 a, with new people and a new home and new family. And all of that is, I mean, it's true, it's certainly true enough on the surface, but, but the book of Ruth is even much more substantial than that. Right? You see, during Ruth's lifetime, there was no king in Israel. And yet we see that the book of Ruth certainly anticipates the coming of a great king to sit on Israel's throne, King David. But we also see that the book of Ruth even points much further further ahead in redemptive history, well past King David, to an even greater king who's in the line of David named Jesus. You know, our, our New Testament opens with Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, saying the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And what we'll see is that Ruth is part of that genealogy. See, the main, the main character in the book of Ruth is it's not Ruth, and it's not Naomi, it's not Boaz, it's actually our God who is working through all things to advance his sovereign and redemptive purpose. And all throughout the, the four chapters of Ruth, we're going to encounter several key themes, like the, the high cost, the high price, the high cost of disobedience and foolishness and sin. We're going to see God's sovereignty, which can be both very, very sweet and very, very hard. And yet we'll see how, how God sovereignly rules and governs, governs over all things. All the details, even all of the impossibly hard tragedies of our lives. He does all of this for our ultimate good and even our salvation. We're also going to see examples of living faithfully, faithfully living out trust in, confidence in God's word and his promises. And then we'll see all throughout the unfolding of the, the story of redemption and the coming of the Redeemer that we all long for and need, which is certainly at the very heart of the book of Ruth. And so before we look at the, the opening verses, we're just going to look at the first five verses. And I want to prepare you because these first five verses are all hard verses. It's a lot of bad news. Okay, things go from, from bad to worse and to worse. Okay, and so before we look at them, I want to read to you a, kind of a long quote from my good friend David Strain, who's the pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi, that he has a little book on Ruth, and there at the beginning that he writes this. I think it's helpful as we orient ourselves to this story. Ruth tells us that the God who spoke the world into being who parted the Red Sea, who thundered on Sinai, and who raised Jesus from the tomb is the same God who is intimately involved in the fateful decision 
a father made to move his family to Moab. He's the same God who superintends the cascade of tragedy that follows that decision. And he's the one who leads the the tattered and broken remnants of Elimelech's household back to Bethlehem to make a new start. The book of Ruth is designed to teach us that there's no point in our lives where God is not present and working all things together for the good of those who love him. Not in the desperation of economic catastrophe, not in the darkness of bereavement, not in the loneliness of personal isolation. And so hear and trust, believe this, there's no place in your life that God's sovereign hand of goodness and grace is not at work. Mysteriously, sometimes in unseen ways, yet to govern and direct all things for your everlasting good, if by grace you are a child of his. And so with this in mind, hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, life-giving word as I read the first five verses of Ruth 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Milan and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Milan and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true. It's given to us in love for our good. And we're going we're gonna to work our way through these five verses, and at the end, we'll draw a couple of, of applications for our lives for today. And so look with me at Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. It says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, then you know that's a very ominous opening uh, to an Old Testament book. You know, Charles Dickens, um, A Tale of Two Cities, opens with, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Well, if you know your Old Testament, Ruth 1 opens with, it was the worst of times. Things were not good. You see, you know, Ruth comes right after, in our Bibles, right after the book of Judges. And if, if you're not familiar with the book of Judges, here's a brief summary. It tells the story of Israel's history, one generation after God used Joshua to, to lead them to take possession of the promised land. And the book of Judges tells this you know, repeating cycle over and over and over again, or really downward spiral that God's people keep, keep going through over and over and over again, where they sin and they rebel against God and his word. And then God disciplines them. He chastens them. He often, he often sends an invading army. And then they repent. And they cry out for help. And God sends the deliverer. And God provides for them. God gives them victory. And then guess what? They rebel against God and his word. And God sends an invading army. And then they repent and they cry out for help. And, and the cycle goes over and over and over again. And the final verse in the, last, in the book of Judges Judges 21, verse 25, gives a very good summary. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. 
You see, friends, it's never been a good idea for you or for me or anyone to do what is right in our own eyes. It was not a good thing 3,000 years ago. It's not a good thing today that we begin to make a big mess of our lives whenever we do what is right in our own eyes without consideration of, of what God's Word says, what He calls us to do, what He calls us to believe, how He calls us to live. So the, the period of the judges would have been roughly from around 1200 B.C. to, to 1020 B.C. or 1000 B.C., and it was a period in the history of redemption of profound moral and spiritual unfaithfulness and instability. And so that's the historical setting for the book of Ruth. Okay, so look again at the first verse. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And we shouldn't just run past that detail of the famine in the land. You see, that detail is significant, right? The people of God were living during the Mosaic Covenant, and God had clearly told the people that rebellion against God and his word would bring about curses. And it could bring about the curse of famine. For example, in Deuteronomy 28, verse 15 to 19, we read, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field, Curses shall, you, shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Curse shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Curse shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. Now, the, the book of Ruth does not explicitly say the famine in the land was a result of uh, God's discipline on his people, but it certainly seems like right that opening phrase the days when the judges ruled, and us knowing that during those days everyone did what was right in their own eyes, linking that, the days when the judges ruled, with the famine in the land is meant to be understood as God's judgment for the people's unfaithfulness to God and his word. And what it should have been, the famine should have been a wake-up call, a wake-up call for, for individuals to, to search their own hearts and lives to see, you know, where is their sin, where is their unfaithfulness? Where do I need to repent and turn to God for his mercy and grace? It should have been a wake-up call for them to corporately join together in, in mourning over their, their corporate sins and, and, and seeking to, to pray for and to bring about revival in the land. And so keep that in mind. And look with me back at Ruth 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now, there's some irony here in the second half of verse 1. You see, this Israelite family that we're going to learn more about, uh, they leave Bethlehem in Judah to go outside the promised land to Moab. And the irony is that the name Bethlehem means house of bread. So do you see the circumstances were so bad in the promised land, right, the land flowing with milk and honey, that even the breadbasket of Israel had no food. And so at this time, this man of Bethlehem, he had a choice to make. He could stay there in the land, the land that was given to him as his inheritance, and, and he could receive this famine that no doubt was impossibly hard as a wake-up call 
Again, to examine himself and see, okay, where do I need to repent? And, and, and to urge others to join him in, in, in trusting in God, in trusting in God to provide for them and to be merciful and to, and to bring about revival and to bring an end to the famine. Or this man could do what he does and take his wife and his two sons to Moab. Now, but the decision to move from Bethlehem in Judah to Moab, it's, it's not a neutral decision. Okay, it, it's, not, it's not like a decision you might make to move from Houston to Dallas, although we may be able to draw some comparisons between Moab and Dallas. But, it, but for this man of Bethlehem, the decision to leave the promised land, to turn his back on the inheritance the Lord had given him, move outside the promised land, to, to live among the pagans in Moab was not a spiritually, morally, theologically neutral decision. You see, during the time of the judges, which is when this is all taking place, the Moabites were arch enemies of Israel. You see, th this man, he, he had no business leaving the promised land to go anywhere, and especially not to Moab. You know, theologian Ian Duguid says, for Israel, Moab was known for several things, none of them good. The Moabites had originated out of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his older daughter. Their king, Balak, had hired Balaam to curse Israel when they came out of Egypt. Their women had been a stumbling block to Israel in the wilderness, seducing them to the worship of false gods. And they had recently oppressed the Israelites in the days of Eglon. That was just in Judges 3. Does this sound like the place to go in order to raise a godly family? And of course not, right? Of course the answer is no. And yet that's what this man from Bethlehem and Judah does. Okay, so look again at Ruth 1, look at verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Milan and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Now, we've already seen that it was a level of irony about Bethlehem, the, the house of bread, having no food. But there's also irony in this man Elimelech's name because his name means, my God is king. My God is king. See, the author of the book of Ruth doesn't make an explicit assessment of Elimelech's faith, but we know that he chose to leave the promised land to raise his family among the pagan Moabites. That he chose to, you know, to cut himself off and his wife and his sons to cut his family off from the people of God and the worship of God to live among the pagans in Moab. Ian Duguid goes on to say, before he left the promised land and went to a place like Moab, Elimelech's very name should have given him pause, for it literally means my God is king. It appears, however, that God was no more king in Elimelech's heart than he was in the hearts of his fellow countrymen. There was no king in Elimelech's life, and therefore, like so many others in the days when the judges ruled, he chose to do what was best in his own eyes. Right? This man ignored his own name and instead did what was right in his own eyes and in effect put himself on the throne of his life, which is what we do whenever we you know, choose to Ignore what God's word clearly calls us to do. We choose to prioritize other things than what God's word clearly calls us to prioritize. You know, author Sarah Ivel says, so often we want what we want when we want it, 
and take the best action that will seem to get our desired result. Waiting for the Lord's timing is difficult. Enduring the chastening hand of the Lord can be painful. And so we run away from the very shelter of his wings. We run to our own Moab. So what are you running away from today? Where are you running? You know, return to the shelter of the Lord today, submitting to his timing to provide you with what you need. But Elimelech does, you know, he does run to Moab. And what we see is that things go from bad to worse and to worse, right? You go, it goes from, from the famine, leaving the promised land, and then things get even worse. Look at verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. I mean, we're not told all the, the conversations and discussions that went on between Elimelech and Naomi leading to this decision to leave Bethlehem and Judah and move to Moab, but, you know, I've been married for 20 years, and so I could imagine, you know, there were conversations. You know, perhaps there was a conversation like this, you know, honey, okay, I agree. Maybe we shouldn't do this. Maybe we shouldn't leave the promised land to live among the pagans of Moab, but we're not going to be there that long. Right, we're just going to be sojourners there for a little while. I mean, we'll, we'll be back in Bethlehem in no time. No time at all. I mean, the boys might not even remember living there, right? But he never makes it back. He never makes it back. Right? It was the wrong decision. It was a foolish decision. It was a, it was a sinful decision made with, with no regard for God's word. And again, when we do that, when we buy into the subtle, the subtle lies and those false promises of sin, things never work out the way we think they will. The price is always a lot higher than we think that we're committing to pay. He never makes it back. He dies. His wife, Naomi, left with her two sons. And then guess what? Naomi and her two sons not only stay in Moab, but the sons took Moabite wives. And so look at verse 4. These took Moabite wives, the names of one was Orpah, the name of the other, Ruth. Right, and you think about this, things keep going from, from bad to worse and, and onward, right? First it was the days of the judges when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Israel had no king. And then there was this famine. And then they leave the promised land to go to the land of compromise to live among the pagan, um, the pagan Moabites. And then Elimelech dies. And then they end up marrying these, these pagan women. And so John Currid, longtime seminary professor, says, how often biblical law demands that the Israelites should not intermarry with pagan peoples. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, for example, says, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Yet as we shall see, the sovereign God will even take such sinful activity and redeem it for his own glory and purposes. But before we begin to see how God's using all of this for his glory and his good purposes, things continue to get worse and worse and harder and harder for Naomi. And so look at the end of verse 4 and look at verse 5. They lived there about 10 years, and both Milan and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons, and her husband. Okay, so you think about this. I mean, this is, you know, 3,000 years ago, right, in the ancient Near East, and 
a woman who was a widow, you know, was in a very vulnerable position. Like women back then, they needed husbands to provide for them. They needed men around them to protect them, to provide for them. But now after Elimelech dies, Naomi's life, it would have obviously become harder, but she would have, could have immediately thought, well, I still have my two sons. I still have my two sons to provide for me. I still have my two sons to protect me. I still have my two sons to care for me as I get older. I mean, these are young men, and, and they, have young, they have young wives, and they have their whole lives ahead of them. And so there's certainly prospects of these two sons having children who, who could assist in, in caring for her as she grew older. But then you see, right, the next 10 years go by and no grandchildren come. And that's hard. And some of you know how hard that is. But we actually we also see in the space of just the first half of verse 5, Nahomi's whole world, it just collapses. It just crumbles. And she's left all alone, not just without her husband, but both sons die. She's left all alone, utterly destitute. And so think about this picture that Sinclair Ferguson gives us. Picture Naomi standing at her third grave. See her sad and tortured face. Are there tears or is she now so emotionally exhausted by sorrow that she's unable to find relief in tears? A, a mourner who cannot weep. Naomi is left without her two sons and her husband. She is, and this is something to which the Old Testament is particularly sensitive, left in the position of someone experiencing one of the most painful curses. There's no living fruit from her womb. She is bereft, alienated, and lonely. And she's in Moab, cut off from God's covenant people, the faithful worship of God among his people. And, and, and that's where our passage ends today. And I know that this doesn't feel like a, a Cinderella story at all, right? I mean, all that's been happening is, is really pretty depressing, right? I mean, this is a lot of hard news. But it will turn out even better than Cinderella and the grass, glass slipper and Prince Charming weeks from now as we continue to move through the story. But, but what are we to learn from these hard opening verses of this book? What are we to learn from these verses that perhaps if you're just reading your Bible, which I always encourage you to do, but you're just reading your Bible, you come to the book of Ruth, and you, know, you spend just a matter of seconds on verses 1 to 5, eager to get into the story. Well, if, if we slow down, we think about these five verses, what are we to learn from them? I think there's two big principles, two things that we must not skip over. First, do not, do not miss the danger of the subtlety of sin. Sin is subtle and it, it, it is deadly. Right? Think back to Elimelech. Right? There's famine in the land. The house of bread has no food. You know, and of course, he should not have forsaken his inheritance. He should not have left the promised land. But remember, right? I mean, the way he rationalized it and justified it was, you know, he had no plans to settle down in Moab. He had no plans to stay there. Things were hard. Things were hard in Bethlehem. There was a famine. His intention was just to be a temporary sojourner in the land of Moab. He was not going to raise his sons there among the pagans. It just seemed like a, a very pragmatic decision to leave the promised land just for a little while, but he always planned to return. 
But remember, Elimelech should have read the famine and those circumstances and the opportunities before him in light of the truth of God's word, which means that the famine should have been a wake-up call to him. It should have led him to examine his own life, where he should repent, to join with others in repenting and mourning over their sin. Now, I mean, so, okay, obviously I, like you, have never been through a famine, so I can only imagine how hard it must have been. But he should have interpreted in light of God's word his promises. He should not have missed the wake-up call. And, 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 but don't, and don't, 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 we should not miss this, that God still sends wake-up calls to his people today. There are still hard circumstances that come Sometimes for the purpose of waking us up to our own sin, to our own unfaithfulness, to where we need to repent, where we need to to turn to God for his grace. In his book, The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to, to rouse a deaf world. God meant for the famine to wake Elimelech and his fellow countrymen up to bring them to repentance, but, but he wasn't hearing it. Right? He rationalized and justified this decision to move to Moab. And I think the question for us to ask ourselves, and let's be honest about it, can't we all in some way relate to Elimelech in this? Haven't we all been there? Haven't we justified and rationalized many decisions that we made Right, doing what was right in our own eyes without any real regard for what God's word calls us to. I mean, I know, you know many of our decisions that we make, are, I mean, they're complicated and there's so many different factors. You know, but, but think about it. I mean, whether it's taking a new job in a place that we research and see, okay, I can't find a strong church anywhere near where I need to live. But I'm going to, take, I'm going to make the move anyway and I'm going to justify it by saying, you know what, it's only for a season. It's only for a season. Our family can endure that, that, that weaker church or no church situation just for a season. Or we're evaluating whether or not to take the promotion, even though it means we have to travel more, like a lot more. And so we're not home, and we're not able to invest in our spouses like we should. We're not able to invest in and disciple our kids like we should. We're going to miss more and more Sundays of worship. But we tell ourselves, we rationalize, we justify it by saying, well, you know, we can endure it just for a little while. Just for a little while, it'll just be a season. Another quote from Ian Duguid, he says, very often in those defining moments in life where we get to direct our own course for the future, the factors that weigh most heavily in our decisions are those that seem most likely to provide us with comfort and security. The bottom line in our lives is rarely God's will, as it is revealed in his word, especially if it seems to cut directly across what we think are our best prospects for happiness and success. We rarely think seriously about the impact our choices will have on our ability to raise a Christian family in a world that's often less than ideal. Like Elimelech, we act as the sovereign of our own lives, making choices that seem best in our eyes without reference to God and without serious thought about the long-term implications. Or maybe, you know, the the subtlety of compromise and and foolishness in our lives is is less about kind of pragmatism and and thinking through decisions and opportunities, and maybe it's just about 
you know, the ordinary, everyday temptations that, that we face to, to believe the subtle lies of sin. You know, we, we justify and rationalize it this way. You know, I, you know I'm just going to look just this once. Just this once. I'm, I'm just going to watch this just once. Okay, I, I'm, it, it's okay for me to tell this lie just this one time. Like, I'm just going to do it once. Hey, no one's going to know about it. It's not even going to hurt anybody. You see, friends, beware the subtle steps by which sin ensnares us. Right? It's, it's a lie. Like sin will tell you, hey, just you can use me. I'll serve you. Subtly, sin ensnares you, and it's your master, and you are serving it. See, sin never, ever, ever makes things better. It's never, ever worth it. It makes us all of these empty, false promises. And it never, ever delivers. And the price we end up paying is way more than we agreed to pay or we thought we were agreeing to pay in the beginning. Right? Leaving Bethlehem from Moab, it was not the right decision. Right? It, it was not justified. It was not wise. It was not faithful to God's word. It wasn't faithful to, to living in light of God's promises. It was not worth it. It didn't make things better for Elimelech and Naomi. You know, David Strain says, what a terrifying enemy sin can be. Subtle, conniving, oblique, persuasive, appearing wise, always plausible. Right? Especially when it's just us and our own minds and hearts. Always plausible. And always, always deadly in the end if we listen to its lies. Sin often ensnares by subtle steps, but the story does not end there. And we praise God for that. But the second thing, that we, as we're thinking about principles to apply to our lives and take from these first five very hard verses, is don't miss how God works in us and for us even through the impossibly hard times. Right? I mean, there's so much in these opening five verses that is, it's hard. It's discouraging. It's depressing. And even though we're not going to go there today, don't miss where the book of Ruth is ultimately headed. Right? Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, they do return to Bethlehem. And Ruth meets and marries a man named Boaz. And they have a son. And then one day we're going to get to, it'll take us a couple of months, we're going to get to the end of Ruth, and we read in Ruth 4, verses 16 and 17, then Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and became his nurse, and the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, a son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed, he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. If you remember what I said at the beginning of the sermon, right, the New Testament opens with Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And Ruth is a part of that genealogy. Right? So don't miss how God works in us and for us, even through the hard times, for our ultimate good, even for our salvation, even for the salvation of others. Okay, so again, I know, I know that this, there's, a hard, there's a hardness about these first five verses. There's no telling where some, you know, some of you really relate to some of these hard things and these personal tragedies, and maybe your mind's going in those places. And so to try to connect the, the hardness and, and that hard reality of these opening five verses 
with the, the glorious truth and blessing that God will ultimately work all things together for our good, I want to end with, with reading a quote to you. It's a little bit of a longer quote, and this again is from David Strain. I read a quote at the beginning as he opened his, his little book on Ruth, and here's one that I think makes these connections. He says, Without Elimelech's faithful decision to flee the famine, without Milan and Kilion taking Moabite wives, without the death of all three of the men in the home, Ruth would never have become the ancestor of Jesus Christ. Isn't it easy to repeat Romans 8.28? It comes to our lips so readily. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We write it in get well soon cards and repeat it to one another in times of stress. And so we should. What a precious text it is. Right? It's a verse that's worth memorizing. If you haven't memorized it, memorize it. Romans 8.28. But just how far has its truth penetrated your heart? Or put another way, do we really believe that God is working all things, even the impossibly hard things, even for you, even for me, for our ultimate good? It goes on, does God work all things together? It's not a greeting card platitude, it's a gritty declaration of fact for real world trials. However low into the shadows of loss you may sink or have your heart pierced through with sorrow and inexplicable suffering, even this God works for good, even this in ways beyond our comprehension, leading ultimately, even if not immediately, to our eternal welfare. The tragedy in, a, in a Elimelech's home ensured that Messiah would be born of Ruth's line to be himself submerged one day into the darkest pit of loss and sorrow and pain, Though sin often ensnares by subtle steps, praise God that he often works by hard providences. And the great proof and demonstration of that is the cross of his son, the hardest providence of them all, by which our salvation has been secured. Right, Calvary's cross is the hardest providence of them all. And praise God that God sent his son to take on human flesh, to dwell among us, to live a perfect, righteous life to die that atoning death on Calvary's cross, to pay for our sins in full, and to rise from the grave on that first Easter morning. You see, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, you know, what, 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 are, you, what are you waiting for? You know, God has you here this morning for a reason. I know that you can relate to the hard circumstances that befall all of us. How, how have you been dealing with that? Where do you turn to? I mean, when, what would be keeping you from turning to a God who loves you so much that he sent his only son to live and to die and rise from the grave so that he could love you, forgive you, transform you from the inside out, adopt you into his family, that you would one day live with him for all eternity. Right? What are you waiting for? I mean, aren't you tired of all the lies and all the empty promises that sin has made to you over and over again and yet not delivered on? Right? What are you waiting for? Come to Christ. Trust him. Rest, rest and receive the salvation that Christ has accomplished by his work. 
that he's lived that perfect life. He died on the cross. His blood will wash away your sin, will make you clean, and his perfect righteous life will be credited to you. He will wash you clean and he will clothe you in his robes of righteousness. And he'll put his spirit within you. So you'll be born again. A new creation in Christ with new desires and new loves and new priorities. A whole new life. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, my guess is most of us have heard Romans 8.28 but do we really believe it? See, please don't leave here today without realizing that there's no place in your life, no place in your life, that includes the impossibly hard circumstances, there's no place in your life that God's sovereign hand of goodness and grace is not at work. There is no place. The book of Ruth teaches this to us. May we believe it and trust it and live in light of it. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we, Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We certainly need it. Lord, please write, write these truths upon our hearts. Help us to, us to see the, the deceitfulness of sin for what it is. That we turn away from it. That we not believe its lies. May we be quick. Quick to repent. Quick to to run to you for the grace that we need. And Father, may we, may we also trust and believe and live in light of the truth that there is no place in our life where your sovereign hand of goodness and grace is not at work. Lord, help us to believe these things, to trust these things, these truths. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.